This episode of the West Buck Show is brought to you by Elite Motorsports, my friends. Located in Winniewood, Oklahoma, gosh, I love saying Winniewood, Elite Motorsports is your premier dealer for all your motorsports transportation needs. Elite Motorsports offers a wide variety of semi-transporters, motor coaches, gooseneck and stacker trailers, specialty hospitality and point-of-sale units, as well as new and used high-performance engines, race cars, and racing equipment. I've been there. They've got so much stuff, it's almost unbelievable. Elite Motorsports works closely with all the racing industry's premier manufacturers, so if they don't have what you're looking for, they'll go out and find it for you. Before you purchase a newer used race rig, check out Elite Motorsports at EliteMotorsportsLLC.com. And tell them that Wes sent you. They'll probably give you a smoking deal or tell you never to call again, one or the other. I'm not positive. EliteMotorsportsLLC.com. These guys are real deal racers, and they will work hard to take care of you. And don't forget that they accept trades. We're also brought to you by Aeromotive Incorporated, a true high-performance aftermarket manufacturer specializing in fuel delivery and fuel system components for drag racing, off-road, late model, street rod, and muscle car, tuner, sports car, marine, and power sports. Utilizing aerospace tolerances and procedures, three generations of track experience, and a meticulous approach to engineering, Aeromotive Fuel Systems offers the pinnacle of performance fuel delivery. The team at Aeromotive believes that performance means reliability, longevity, and durability. That's the philosophy they've built their company and their products on, so dial up aeromotiveinc.com, aeromotiveinc.com on the World Wide Web and get after it. Whether you've got a twin-turbo LS on E85 or a roots-blown Hemi, Aeromotive has what you need. I don't know how or why it is, but apparently people want to hear me talk about drag racing. I never really thought I'd see the day that we'd be able to do one of these shows or do an episode of the podcast where I just talk about drag racing. It's crazy, but that's the feedback we get. So here I am. It's just me. We're talking about drag racing, asking questions, answering questions. A few weeks ago, we uploaded an episode that we called Slide Into Our DMs, asking readers and listeners to send us their questions, and they did. Ask and ye shall receive, they say. They actually did. I couldn't really believe it that we got as many questions as we did, but here we go. I'm going to dive into all these questions one by one, answer them uh, to the best of my ability, probably put a little bit more opinion on them than I probably should, but that's what uh, we get paid for. So here goes a little bit of drag racing opinion. Let's talk drag racing in Ask West. Let's do this thing. So the first one that I got came from actually a friend of mine, and they asked, what do you think of big name racers, real racers, quote unquote real racers, that's going to hurt some feelings, like Dwayne Mills, Daniel Ferris, and the Bruder Brothers, or now Pat Musi getting involved with, high, with the high profile no prep scene? It's interesting. I say that all the time, but it really is. And I think the biggest thing that I've kind of run into with this whole, I actually have received a couple of questions about no prep racing in general. Where do I stand on it? What do I think about it? And I'll address that here real quick while I have the opportunity to talk about drag racing on massively unprepared racing surfaces. And I have to say that as counterintuitive as it seems to be, I've got no problem with it. I think everybody that's getting involved with no prep racing knows exactly what they're getting into. Obviously, they take a beating for the amount of stuff that gets torn up over there in that in that whole world. And I hate that every time I see it. Every time I see a picture posted on Facebook or Instagram or wherever else, It breaks my heart to see people tearing up the stuff that they work so hard for and they spend all this money on. However, I do think that unprepped racing surface, it's like the ultimate equalizer. We've looked at throughout the course of drag racing history, we're always trying to identify whatever the next, whatever we can use, whatever we can do, whether it's a rule, whether it's the track surface, whatever the case may be. We're always trying to find something to 
create parody or improve the the at least provide some illusion of parody, which is what I always refer to it as because I don't know that there's ever truly parody in the sport of drag racing. And the no prep scene, I'm, I've got no problems with it. I'm excited about it. I think that the amount of money that's being raced for over there is expi- is inspiring and exciting. I've I, I Early on, I used to liken no prep racing to going to a motocross race, right? Like drag racing, all this stuff's dangerous enough. But just imagine motocross racing. Everybody knows it's dangerous. You're flying through the air on a motorcycle or whatever. Seems, seems sketchy to me. Let's just put spikes in between every jump, in between every double. Let's put molten lava or something and just make what's already dangerous, already hard, even more dangerous and even more difficult. And I, I kind of struggled with it. However, my street racing roots and I just think there is something cool about what's going on in the no, with the no prep movement. And I think there's a couple things that really stick out to me. One, I love the notion of unloading race cars and racing. I think that it's crazy to me how many people seem to have lashed onto it. This is something that happens in truck and tractor pulling that I never really understood is that my dad, for those that don't know, has an automotive repair shop in the town that I live and they do all sorts of like high performance stuff and they're always building engines for people. And there's this guy, Wayne, I remember really well all throughout my childhood, he was always in the shop and, and my dad and my uncles built him like a 500, like a 496 cubic inch big block Chevy, just like a, a, a really radical race engine. But the, the pulling tractor and pulling truck organizations are all very unique, their rules and so on and so forth. So it had to, I mean, it had to have like a, I think a single plane cast aluminum intake on it. I think it had to have stock style cylinder heads on it. There was a bunch of rules and nuances. But anyways, I always was blown away how much money old Wayne would spend to go to a local truck and tractor pull to make one pull. Because as a spending a lifetime at the drag strip, I couldn't really wrap my head around the fact that here this guy's going to spend all this money, invest all this time and energy, oftentimes tow a pretty good way. They never went, he never went like hundreds of miles away from home maybe, but he'd go a hundred miles away from home, and I'm probably shortchanging him a little bit. He probably went a little further than that, but it always blew my mind the handful of times I went with him that we would go through all this work, unload the truck, do all these things, and we would make one pull. And it's interesting to me that this is basically what's going on with these no prep races. You draw names out of a hat, and you go make one run, and if you don't win, you're going home. It seems like drag racers would have a hard time latching onto that, but it's not really been as much of a deterrent as I thought. So I guess if you're going to race, if you're going to put your car out there on the starting line and you're going to risk your life and you're going to risk tearing up all this stuff, it might as well have some meaning. Why make 50 time trials? Why make a bunch of qualifying runs? Why not just have a drag race? Why not just have it matter? So I think that's a pretty cool part of the no prep scene. The fact that you go to those events and you see all these trucks all these rigs and it's open trailers and 28 foot, 32 foot tag trailers. And it just seems like it's a, it's a phenomenal group of people that really are representative of drag racing's bread and butter. These are guys that largely aren't sponsored, aren't getting a bunch of stuff given to them or anything like that. These are guys that work jobs, work on their own stuff. And this is a good segue here into the actual question that I was asked about big name quote-unquote real racers getting involved with the no prep scene specifically with like the no prep king show on discovery channel which for the uninitiated is a spinoff essentially of street outlaws i think that's a whole other conversation i have predicted for a while and it was really frankie taylor who is an adrl pro extreme superstar 
carried that success over into PDRA Pro Extreme and is now uh, a hitter in the Midwest Pro Mod Series and just a well-known and beloved guy and a super capable tuner and driver. And I predicted a few years ago when he made it known that he was going to get into no prep racing, this dude's going to crush everybody's souls. This is, gonna, this is a guy that's going to take something really fun and ruin it. And it didn't happen as quickly as I thought it was going to, but it's happening now. As these big-name guys, these big-name drivers with hired gun teams and hired gun tuners, so on and so forth, it's only a matter of time before they drive a nail, it, it really build a coffin and put no prep in it and nail that thing shut. That's my opinion. I just don't know that. And that's why everybody is pretty sensitive about the, and I don't know exactly who all is responsible for kind of the picking and choosing of who's allowed to come race in these events. I know that's been a big popular storyline on social media, and I don't want to, I admit to not knowing all the inner workings of who's making those decisions and how they're made, but it's painfully obvious that they have a cast of characters that compete on that show, Ryan Martin, Birdman, Chuck, the, the list goes on. A handful of other guys, I'm I'm butchering this because I don't know all these people intimately, but my point is that they have to make sure that these guys are out here having a chance. You can't have the cast of characters change every episode because you're in a different part of the country, which is a lot of what happens in drag racing. I mean, we see it from the top to the bottom. You go out on the West Coast in Top Fuel, you're going to get a few West Coast cars that you don't see when the NHRA rolls into Norwalk or whatever way out here on the East Coast. So, that's something that they've kind of got to contend with. And I don't really fault them for trying to make sure that their particular cast of characters always have a good shot to go some rounds. Cause if they just open the doors to anybody, you're going to get these guys coming in there and running over top of them. So they have to protect themselves from that. However, I do think that they've, it's a fine line because you also, you run the risk of completely annihilating any sort of real credibility or the notion that it's real racing by picking and choosing who can be involved with it. And there have been guys that have kind of fought, gone against the grain. Larry Larson comes to mind, well-known Hot Rod Drag Week superhero, uh, Midwest-based chassis builder, and a really talented guy, a great dude all the way around. He's shown up over there, had a lot of success, kind of rattled some cages. And I think that they, again, I don't, pretend to know every single thing that happened but there was a lot of pushback on that type of thing they tried to change the rules to run him off and they didn't affect it they didn't get it done he came back made changes to his truck the world famous s10 that i think everybody on the planet has seen i recently saw a post on facebook where he put that s10 up for sale and it got like a thousand shares or something like that it reached millions of people so super well-known racer he came over there and he was a thorn in their side immediately i think they recognize that they know it's an issue and they have to be really careful of letting anybody else into it because Dwayne mills which our question identifies and daniel ferris have shown up and provided a real problem for this cast of characters this is someone Dwayne mills and daniel ferris are amongst drag radio racing's most fiercest competitors they these guys are high level they are extremely well financed they have the money to buy the right parts and hire the right people and i've talked about this before on the pages of drag illustrated and pretty much anywhere i have the opportunity that this is this is going to upset somebody but i would argue that there's no one not a single character not a single driver or tuner in the no prep scene that could translate their success in that arena overnight to success in NHRA Pro Mod or NHRA Pro Stock or Radio vs. the World or probably even X275. However, I would argue that 
any top tier, top ten contending Radio vs. the World team, X275 team, NHRA Pro Mod team, or NHRA Pro Stock team could leave that arena and immediately be competitive at a high level in no prep drag racing. And that's, it sounds like a shot across the bow. It really does. It seems like I'm saying something crazy, but it's just, there's levels to this shit, friends. I don't mean to quote, you know, every rap song that's on the radio right now or whatever, but Meek Mill said it best. There's levels to this shit. And this is going and racing at an NHRA national event or PDRA. That's, I left them out and I feel bad now. You could take any of those top PDRA pro extreme or pro nitrous or pro boost teams they're going to crush souls and step on throats if they start showing up at your local neighborhood no prep race. There's just no doubt about it. It, it, I don't even have to labor over this notion. It's just going to happen. So I think that there's there's an issue there, and I don't see that the – I predict the no prep kings people will be – will continue to push back against – real big name heavy hitting pro level race teams showing up over there and screwing up this awesome thing that they have going. And that's really all there is to it. I think everybody can bitch and moan about it as much as they want on the internet and nothing's really going to change. I mean, if there was the WWE, there's been an infinite number of examples here. This is the teams. This is who we have. This is who they have on their roster. And this is who's going to race. I don't care if there's someone bigger and badder. There's always going to be someone bigger and badder. They're able to do a fantastic job with that show, tell a fantastic story without, you know, kicking the gates open and just letting anybody in who wants to come. So screw it. Don't. And I don't blame them a bit. I really don't. I think that that exclusivity, picking and choosing, does as much to promote No Prep Kings in that show as letting everybody on the planet in. Everybody wants what no one else has. And to be able to go get that exposure on television, on Discovery Channel of all, of all channels, of all things, all places, to be able to get that level of visibility, man, I think they're best suited to just pick and choose who comes and plays and who doesn't. And it's it will be fun. They've already let some people in that they're not going to be able to get rid of easily. So the Bruder Brothers, I kind of overlooked them. They're another example of some people who pretty well kick ass and take names everywhere they go they're going to be massively successful in that arena i know that pat musi world-renowned engine builder and tuner has you know makes has plans to be on the scene from here on out from what i understand helping with kai kelly and lizzie musi's two-car team so he'll be interesting the coolest part about that is that it would appear to me when they let someone in they do so well knowing what they bring to the table, basically. So if they're going to do it, they're going to let it be a Pat Musi or a Lizzie Musi or whatever. Someone they know brings something to the table. And it's a, the, I think that the, the other side of this coin that breaks my heart a little bit is the fact that, and it's very difficult to say without ruffling feathers, so whatever, there's, it's sad to me on some levels, it breaks my heart a little bit that, no prep racing has become like the it thing. It crushes me, man. It crushes me so hard that there aren't people. I mean, if you think about this, Dwayne Mills, and I don't know, I mean, I'm not looking at his checking account right now, but I would imagine, based on what I've seen, that Dwayne Mills, Oklahoma based businessman, can probably afford to do any type of drag racing that he chose to do within reason. And the fact that they scramble to build a no prep car and dive into that world kind of breaks my heart because there's 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 other cool shit going on i would 
I wish, but it's because of that visibility. It's because of that fanfare. It's because of sold out crowds and television cameras that those guys want to go there. And I guess if I'm anybody else in drag racing, if I'm the NHRA, the IHRA, PDRA, the NMCA, whatever the case may be, I'm going, how can I make these guys more famous? How can I point more cameras at this stuff? Because that's clearly the big buzz, the big talk. That's what draws draws these guys in. And I think that that's probably what's lacking at drag racing's highest levels because you're we're not seeing anybody building cars to go run over there at the highest level we're scrambling to get cars across the board over there even where it's hot even at the the brightest spots on the nhra radar it's tough because you're still struggling to get cars to some extent struggling to see the kind of growth that you want to see to feel really good about the future of drag racing so that's a long way to say that I'm all for no prep racing. I think it's an exciting thing. Honestly, I, I think I can say that if I was going to build a car today, right now, I'd probably go no prep racing. And if I didn't go no prep racing, I would go grudge racing. I would go run these small block no time deals or I would go run a big time, a big tire no clock deal. That just seems to be like a fun place to race. You can do a lot of racing You don't have to be there for three or four days or park on Thursday and not be able to leave until the race is over on Sunday evening. I just think it's a really great place to go drag racing. So kudos to what's going on in no prep racing. I think they've got still it's lasted, I think, longer than anybody suspected it would. It's it's carried on. It's got a lot of momentum still to this day. But I truly believe the driving force behind all of it is television. No matter what anybody says about YouTube, social media, all those things are extremely valuable. They're definitely trending the right direction, but it's not over. Not everybody's cut the cord or whatever they want to say or whatever cool headline is being shown on your Facebook timeline right now. There are still tons of people that consume traditional types of media, and it's a needle mover. Look no further than the street outlaws. Somehow, some way. Big Chief, Murder Nova, Farm Truck and Asian, those guys are drag racing's A-list celebrities. They are probably the most visible people the sport of drag racing has seen in a long, long time in terms of invading pop culture, and TV has driven that bus. Has social media helped? Absolutely. But that, that movement started on channel 146 or whatever it is on your local dial. I don't know, but... There's no doubt that TV moves the needle. So next question, I got to move on a little bit here. So this is something we've touched on a little bit before, but the question reads, how important are smaller regional series like the Carolina Extreme Pro Mod Series to that form of drag racing? That form being Pro Mod style drag racing. Well, this is a fun one because it gives me the opportunity to Share the love a little bit, to quote Stephen Share, the YouTube sensation that I was just, you know, going against YouTube, but... My daughter loves this guy. Anyways, I digress. I think that John Four, well-known drag racing photographer who's actually on the men right now, John Four III, suffered a mild stroke earlier in 2019. Thoughts and prayers, my man, if you're listening. John and I have had this conversation on a lot of occasions that ProMod has benefited more so than any other class of drag. It's a real rare situation because I think at least in the modern history of drag racing, say, like the last 30 years, if you will, I think that ProMod has been, has grown tremendously 
this particular brand of drag racing because you can race these things everywhere. You can run this style of car. It has benefited so much from, and it's really sea to shining sea here. It's the Northeast Outlaw Pro Mod Association. Shout out to John Mazarana, the you know, Carolina Extreme Pro Mod Series, the Big Dog Series, the Renegade Series, the Mad Dog Series, all these different series on the East Coast that have existed for a long, long time. There are a multitude of, I mean, and it goes on. The Texas Pro Stock Association, I think the Dixie Pro Stocks, the Southern Nitrous Racers Association. Uh, before that, there was like Texas King of the Hill, the Texas Outlaw Pro Mods, Topma, as it was known, which was really a huge deal when Drag Illustrated was kind of coming of age. Topma was a really big deal down in Texas that people paid attention to, and a lot of big name Brandon Pez, uh, Frankie Taylor, Galen Smith, Doug Reister. There was a ton of guys that kind of came out of that scene and had a lot of success on a national stage. So then you go out west. I mean, here in the Midwest right now, the Midwest Pro Mod Series is really making a lot of noise. Before that, there had been a few... I don't want to say failed, but a few pro mod series that kind of came and went, but there were tracks based series that had a lot of success. I had a series in Southeast Iowa in 2005 that really had a big following in a short or in short amount of time, the pro outlaw series at Eddieville raceway park. Then way out West, there's the West coast hot rod association. There's uh, what else is there? My goodness, the PSCA Mel Ross uh, brainchild, the Pacific streetcar association. There's, been all these series and sanctions where you can run a big tire tube chassis carbon or fiberglass body race car and i think that the highest level of pro mod has benefited from that tremendously and again i think it's really really unique because a lot of the parts and pieces that are being used at the highest levels of pro modified racing and let's say that's the nhra Pro Mod series presented by JNA Service. Shout out to those guys for supporting the class and the E3 spark plugs, of course. But all of that stuff, and this is something that's always kind of been interesting to me personally, is that the secondary market, it's been such a big deal, right? Because whatever car Mike Castellana or Steve Matusik or Erica Enders or whatever, any Jeremy Ray, those cars will be sold on the, the secondary market. In a year or two or whatever, a lot of those guys bring out new cars every year. The Whiteley family, Jim Whiteley's car will be up for sale. Stephen Whiteley's car will be up for sale. And that'll be something that a, you know, a, a not a low buck, but like a budget-minded racer or even a guy that's fairly successful, owns a small business and wants to race, has teamed up with a couple of friends and can go buy an engine and, you know, Bob's going to buy a motor and so-and-so is going to help us wire the car and do all the electronics and get it painted and I'm going to buy the car itself. That Those cars end up on the secondary market. And I think it's really continued the growth of this type of drag racing. But again, the fact that there are all these sanctioning series where you can go run these cars regularly, you can run them for a decent amount of money. You're not racing for 10, 20, 50 grand every weekend, but you can go race for three, five, seven thousand $7,000 probably at a lot of these local or regional series. And I think it's been fantastic for the sport of drag racing. And truly, I mean, it's no wonder to me at all that pro mod and top sportsmen are amongst the hottest classes coast to coast in the sport of drag and really around the world in the sport of drag racing because you can race them a lot of places. The stuff's readily available. And again, the parts that are used at the absolute pinnacle, they're also used next door, right? I mean, everybody runs a lot of the same stuff, the same torque converters, the same clutches, the same gear ratios, the same engines. The only thing that... And this is switching gears here a little bit. And this is actually one of the – I don't want to skip all the way to the bottom. But 
there's a question here all the way at the bottom of the list, and I, I probably should have tried to have someone here order order these here for me a little bit more or organize them. But there's a question at the bottom that says, any positive or negative trends that you're seeing as 2019 approaches the halfway mark? And I'm going to use that and kind of merge that with the question about these small sanctions and series and just say that a unified pro-mod rule set, I understand. I've been told by high-level people that it's a pipe dream, a pipe dream that burns bright in my head and heart, man. I just truly believe that if we could establish some sort of unified rule set, it would be such a huge deal for door slammer drag racing because all of a sudden, instead of having 23 NHRA legal quarter mile pro mods racing this past weekend in Virginia, we may have 150 legal pro mods racing across the country. And that's something that we we need to have happen because there was probably 150 pro mods racing across the country, but there are all these different kind of, and I use the word bastardized a lot, but that's really what it is. There's all these bastardized rule sets that kind of fit the local contingent. And I really think that if you look at the golden era of pro mod being like the height of IHRA, when they're the thing that I always love, everybody says the same thing. I remember when there were 46 cars trying to qualify at Rockingham, right? If you look at that, I think that those 46 cars, that that number, that inventory of cars is produced almost entirely. I mean, you could probably point to the economy. You could probably point to that point in time, whatever. But it was really, in my opinion, boils down to the fact that pretty much everybody in the country ran IHRA rules. NHRA ran IHRA rules. Most of the, the West Coast Pro Mod Association ran IHRA rules. In the Midwest, at some Pro Mod shootout, they ran IHRA rules. That was the universal standard rule set was IHRA rules. Whatever was going on in the IHRA was what went on at every local – not every, but I, I use that term kind of generically, but maybe more so than – and I'm sure there were some places that had their own little cooked-up deal, but by and large, people ran IHRA rules. And we have strayed away from that, right? We've Everybody kind of starts tweaking the rules. And this just happens. It's something that happens in drag racing. But I look at boxing is one of the examples that I like to use the most. Boxing has suffered. A lot of people would agree that boxing's become watered down. There's like 15 different leagues, federations, clubs, whatever, associations. And each one of them have a champion. And I don't know that drag racing is quite pro-modified. Drag racing is quite that bad. But that watering down hurts. And I, I truly think that there's probably a business. I point to the Real Pro Mod Association, which is, for those that don't know, they are like the governing body of the NHRA Pro Mod Drag Racing Series. So the way that works is there is a 12-race NHRA Pro Mod Drag Racing Series, but it really is ultimately a an understanding or an agreement, a legal agreement, I believe, between the Real Pro Mod Association and the NHRA to put on the NHRA hosts 12 races for the Real Pro Mod Association, and the Real Pro Mod Association serves RPM, so I can talk a little faster here, is RPM serves as kind of the organizing platform. NHRA runs the races, NHRA runs the rules, NHRA handles the tech, NHRA handles all the infrastructure, but the Real Pro Mod group, RPM, and its board members kind of work together to find sponsors, to you know, cater to different, you know, cater to different uh, needs of different racers or whatever the case may be. They are who are responsible for bringing these cars in 12 times a year for the NHRA. I would argue that there's a, I've, I think that we should franchise that program where RPM or real pro mod becomes 
like a franchise thing. Think of think John Sears and X275. I think what John has done with X275 is masterful. And I know it has been a nightmare for this man. It's been very hard for John Sears, largely known as the godfather of X275 series drag radio racing because of the rules and all the different combinations and, and every battle that he's had to fight to try to maintain parity amongst that plethora of engine combinations. But what he's done is he's created this rule package and then he has allowed tracks across the country to adopt that rule package, but he makes them agree to live and die by that rule package. So if you want to claim your event as an X275 race, you've got to run John's rules. Period. If you want your race listed on the X275 website, if you want to be part of that conversation, if you want to use the massively well-known X275 logo to promote your races, you've got to buy into John's rules. I think that something similar could be done, and possibly for a profit, or at least for money, by the Real Pro Mod Association. I believe that we should... There should be an effort to franchise that rule set. Let's let's dub this the rule set. Real Pro Mod is going to be the unified rule set for drag racing, for Pro Modified drag racing. And you can host a RPM endorsed event by buying into that rule package. So this past weekend with the NHRA national event in Virginia, they had 23-some-odd Pro Mods there. My, my vision for this would be that if we franchise that rule package – we could have 10 RPM-endorsed, RPM-sanctioned events going on on any given weekend. So we may be having a national event in Virginia, but we could maybe be having a RPM shootout in Dallas, Texas, at extreme outside Dallas at Extreme Raceway Park, or we could be having an RPM-sanctioned event out in Bakersfield or wherever the case may be, but they have to run, and there's going to be some short-term pain for a long-term gain. I think that you're going to have some people mad. You're going to have some people have to spend some money. You're going to, the ripping the bandaid off or whatever will be a little bit of a process. It's going to sting a little bit. You're probably going to piss someone off. And you know what? Worst case scenario, you're probably going to have some guys sell their stuff or whatever, whatever they choose to do, park it for a year or two. That's fine. But I believe long-term, this will help us far more than it will hinder us in the next year or two. You may have some car counts go down in some places, but over the long term, all of a sudden, now we have everybody swimming the same direction. We have everybody running with the same stuff. I think that it would help the aftermarket. I think that these blower manufacturers is one that really sticks out to me. These supercharger manufacturers, I think it would drive costs down at the highest levels because a Chuck Ford or an Al Billis or a Mike Janis Instead of them having like a, a customer pool of 40 or 30 cars to choose from, not even that, if you've got guys that are super high level, probably half that, maybe a dozen guys that you have as potential customers in the Pro Mod ranks, now all of a sudden you may have 150. By my last count, and shout out to John Waldy, for those that know him, John's a wonderful guy that's a huge part of the Real Pro Mod Association. John and I had this discussion over the weekend that there's roughly 150 and then it's the number's probably a little higher than that. Cars that could are NHRA legal, run RPM rules, or could be with very minimal changes. And that's a huge number. And I would love to see that number, 150 cars, out there 
flying the RPM flag. I truly think that that's a realistic thing. Will it be easy? Probably not. Nothing really is. Nothing worthwhile is seemingly ever easy. So, But if we could get everybody to kind of even embrace this idea, but there's this is the the perpetual problem that exists is egos get in the way. Everybody wants this stuff to be their flavor. They don't want to tip their cap. They don't want to kiss the ring. I literally had this conversation a few years ago when the IHRA was in the midst of their big turnaround, and it was everybody was excited. I vividly remember standing on the PRI show floor in Indianapolis, Indiana, speaking with a rule maker at the IHRA, and they had just released their rules, and they were going to run NHRA rules that had been fairly significantly tweaked. They were going to allow different larger turbos. They were going to allow lockup transmissions, I believe. They were also going to let the blower cars run at 20% over instead of 14 and a half, which is where the NHRA cars were at the time. And I literally went over and I said, man, my opinion probably means nothing to you, but I really think you guys are making a mistake. I think that, and I had to say it. I, I mean, I care. I have to say it. I probably don't speak my mind openly as much as I should or as much as I would like to, but I, I said that I truly believe we're making a mistake. We have to make it so that if we want the IHRA Pro Mod Series to flourish, let's run NHRA rules. Let's just run the rule book that's established. I understand that on some level they're a competitor, right? I mean, maybe on every level they're a competitor, but let's be honest. Is the IHRA really looking to go out and just go toe-to-toe with NHRA? No, you're trying to go after a different piece of the market. You're trying to go after different track owners. You're trying to go after a different type of fan, possibly. So let's go out. You guys would be better suited to do that if you had a larger inventory of cars. Let's give NHRA Pro Mod teams, and let's not even refer to them if that. If that's faux pas, if that's going to piss everybody off to call them NHRA cars, let's call them RPM cars, real Pro Mods. Let's go after those guys and make sure that the number one or two guy in NHRA points – RPM points, whatever you want to say, has the option to go run a couple of IHRA events as testing. And you know what? Maybe that that beats up your ego a little bit to think that we want to be more than testing. We want to have our own cars. That's great, but you've got to give that time. You've got to give it a little bit of time to happen. You've got to let that water boil. And they they refused to do it. They wanted to, and their argument was they didn't want to bow to, it was their words, not mine, did not want to bow to the NHRA. And I thought, man, this is the industry leader. Why not bow to the NHRA? That's like not bowing to the Bible or something. That's just, hey, that's the way it's supposed to be. Let's not write our own rules. Let's just go with the Bible. And I I think the NHRA rule book is the Bible. I mean, most drag strips live and die by that thing. So why would we try to fly in opposition to that? And I think the proof's in the pudding. That deal's dead as a doornail. Nobody's running IHRA Pro Mod anymore. I think that the last little bit of IHRA Pro Mod was not at all representative of IHRA Pro Mod at its heyday. Car counts were down. Interest was down. It was kind of, it was, it was not taken seriously on any level. And that stinks. It stinks for the people who did participate in it. And it stinks for everybody, for everybody. No one was a winner in that situation because egos got in the way, which is so often the case. But... It is what it is at this point, and I think that we can only try to learn. That's my all I want to do from it is learn from it. And if we want pro modified drag racing to live on for a long, long time, we have to be finding ways, exploring ways to grow the inventory of cars. And that's by getting more of these things being built 
and raced. I've challenged rule makers at the NMCA, the PDRA, multiple other places, the Northeast Outlaw Pro Mod Association. Let's try to form a summit. Let's have a summit. Let's get everybody together, together and let's sit down at a table and work this out. And even if it's not an overnight fix, let's just start having conversations. I think we'd be it'd be exciting to say that we have a plan by 2023 to have four sanctions, different ones, running the same rules, creating the opportunity for crossover. Because what's even more exciting about that is that we may be able to share some fans. We may be able to use a marketing term, cross-pollinate. We may be able to bring over some NHRA fans to the Northeast Outlaw Pro Mod Association. We may be able to do bring some NMCA fans over to the NHRA and vice versa. High tide lifts all boats, as Warren Buffett says, and I believe it to be true in this case especially. So, that's kind of bouncing all over the place with the pro mod thing, but it's something I feel strongly about. A unified rule set for pro mod would go down in history as a as a landmark happening. It truly would, and it would stink. There's going to be some people left out in the cold, but you have to think that just because they're running five sixties, because you can run them eighth mile, quarter mile, it doesn't really matter. And I think that you could probably have some slight nuances, but we want the hard parts to be the same. We want. We want the same size turbos. We want the same superchargers. We want most of the rules to be pretty close. You don't want to have to have a guy spend ten, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars, and I've heard of much higher numbers taking his car from quote unquote outlaw to legal trim. And and what I also think that this opens the door for, which I've completely glossed over here, is the fact that all of a sudden outlaw pro mod could really become something significant. It could be the home of screw blowers, and it could be, become the home of super lightweight cars. And how that looks and how we make that kind of all work together, that's probably another conversation. But you're, there are going to be these 100-plus millimeter turbo cars, these 94-millimeter turbo cars, these screw blower cars. There's, there's always going to be those guys that want to push the envelope, that want to make crazy power, that want to try to run 340s in the eighth mile, that want to run 220, 230 miles an hour in the eighth mile. You're always going to have those guys, and and God bless them. I love those guys, to be honest. But I think that it really raises their stock in a lot of ways, because all of a sudden we can start branding that category, and maybe that becomes a division of this whole thing, where you've got Real Pro Mod, or maybe it changes. I think Real Pro Mod could probably be seen as slightly derogatory if you weren't in that group, so you can make it Legal Pro Mod and Outlaw Pro Mod, or which would be I'll make a lot more sense is just have pro mod and outlaw pro mod. And it's no more than to, I use these UFC analogies all the time. It's light heavyweight and heavyweight or whatever. It's boxing and MMA. It's slight variations of a, of a, of a similar thing. So again, to kind of just recap that thing briefly, I do think that all these small series play such a huge role in the success of in growth and popularity of pro mod drag racing as a whole. And to, book in this particular part of the conversation, I have to say that this type of drag racing is the universal language of drag racing, pro mod drag racing. And I know that I am biased. I love this stuff. We put on our own event, the world series of pro mod, August 9th and 10th, 2019, Bandamere Speedway, get your tickets, world series of But it's really unique. This is the, the only class of drag racing, the only eliminator category in drag racing that is wildly successful around the globe, whether it's Russia, Sweden, Europe, Australia, all across the Middle East, here in, uh, here in the United States and in Canada. This is a type of drag racing that is growing. And there's no reason 
that it cannot be the biggest thing in drag racing. Look no further than the aforementioned no prep Kings street outlaws to find examples that the cars are not the stars. I think the cars can play a role. They really can. Big Chief's got the the crow. Murder Nova has the Murder Nova, which is kind of a weird one. But all these guys have vehicles that are iconic, that are very well known. But make no bones about it. Sean Ellington, the driver of Murder Nova, is the star. He wears flip-flops. He's got his fingernails painted, his toenails painted, his hat's always backwards. He's got the big goatee and the tattoos. He's got a look. Same with Big Chief. He is, an, he's a, he is as every bit as iconic or recognizable as his race car. And I, don't, I think that I would argue that if put on television, those guys could probably cage fight. They could probably demo derby. They could probably restore cars. They could probably, I don't know, hunt frogs. And they can certainly drag race fast cars. And they're going to be superstars. The personalities drive the bus in that program. And the opportunity exists for the same thing over here in Pro Mod or Top Fuel or Funny Car. The cars are not the stars. The people are. The men and women who drive them, those are the stars of the show. No other thing, in my experience, is such a heavy focus put on the tools involved, the tools of the trade. That's a that, that's behind-the-scenes stuff. That's industry insider stuff. I care about tube chassis, and I care about chromoly stuff and titanium stuff and carbon fiber stuff. But the casual fans do not. They care about the, the guy behind the wheel. They're trying to find a way to connect to that dude. Drag racing at the highest level has not done a good enough job trying to create an emotional connection between the fan bases, the masses, and the, the people driving these cars. We keep trying to do something that's, physic- that's impossible, and that's create a, a, a worldwide or a, a large, significant connection between man and machine. It's just not going to happen. It's it's not going to happen at least at the level we need it to to grow the sport of drag racing and ensure a long and healthy sport for the or future for the sport of drag racing. So it's something that we've got to address at some point in the future. I can talk about this till I'm blue in the face, and I almost am. I got to get a drink of coffee if I'm going to be able to continue this pace. But seriously, that's something that. I'd love to talk about more. I wish there was more opportunity to discuss these things openly with people that have that are in positions of power that are able to change the direction of things. It's interesting to look at the sport of drag racing and see such shining examples and not see an effort being made to replicate them. John Force, Big Daddy Don Garlitz, Don the Snake Perdome, God rest his soul, Tom the Mongoose McEwen. Shirley Cha-Cha Muldowney, there are so many, Grumpy Jenkins, Bob Glidden, I mean, there's been these iconic superstar personalities in the sport of drag racing that have all, and they all have, those are all the teams that had huge sponsors, right? Those are the teams that still have huge sponsors. Those are the teams that made lasting impacts. They, I would argue that those are the teams that probably sold more t-shirts than anybody else. Those are the teams that move the needle and that have grown our sport and are responsible for every little uptick in growth that our sports probably had. So why isn't there an effort being made to to generate more of those stars? And And it's not something you can necessarily generate, but it's something that you can identify just like a football, baseball, basketball scout. These guys, there are scouts, people getting paid tons of money to go out to High school football games, high school baseball games, college baseball games, basketball games, the list goes on, identifying big talent. And they look at things like height, weight, vertical, 
hand-eye coordination, speed, 40-yard dash, whatever, bench press. They look at all these different metrics to identify people that they think can be stars or very successful in their respective sports. Is that effort being made in drag racing? Because I think that I can identify probably a dozen people right now that I believe should be, and it pains me to say this because I'm not necessarily a nitro nut. I love nitro racing and I love what it represents for our sport. It, what it means for our sport. It's obviously the highest level of drag racing is top fuel and funny car. No question. I'm a pro mod guy. I'm a door slammer guy. So it's hard for me to say what I'm about to say that I can point to a dozen people in the sport of drag racing that should probably be either in the process of like being groomed to be the next John force or being kind of forced into that role right now. But we're just waiting for one to manifest. That's how it feels. We're waiting for a billionaire to decide, a, a billionaire, an adrenaline junkie billionaire to take a notion to go drag racing, and fingers crossed, he's cool as shit. Hopefully, whatever rich guy manifests in drag racing next, and this sport has a penchant for these people showing up. It's unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it in my life because it seems like there are tons of stories of you know this hugely successful guy that you know the up-and-coming baseball player that lives in poverty drag racing just seems to generate super rich people all the time we are so lucky and it's crazy to me that we have the struggles that we do when we have all these super rich people running around at the racetrack these guys are clearly smart clearly successful maybe we should ask them some questions or get some input from them but i digress we sit around collectively. This sport is waiting for, and there's probably no better example than Alexis DeJoria. She had a good bit of success in NHRA funny car competition. She, her family, John Paul DeJoria, super successful billionaire businessman, owns Patron Tequila, owned the House of Blues, owns Paul Mitchell hair care products, and I don't even know what else. I'm sure all sorts of different things. I know they have a, a charity of some sort, but huge business. And they come into the sport of drag racing, and I honestly think that there are people sitting around just hoping that Alexis, another Alexis shows up. And Alexis has left the sport of drag racing, right? She came in, made a big difference, hired up a bunch of people, bought a bunch of parts, spent a bunch of money, played a big role, was a focal point for the NHRA for several years, but now she's gone. Who's Courtney Force left the sport this year. Big news. The daughter of John Force, I would say one of the most visible force daughters had a lot of success wasn't able to win a championship but did a lot of winning beautiful star power in spades no question and she's gone so what it why is that what are we doing how are we going to replace those people how are we going to get new ones i don't think that we can just sit around and hope that one of our well-to-do team owners have a, a kid that shares their passion for going fast and and burning money and shows up in the sport of drag racing and changes everything. We're still putting all our eggs in the John Force basket collectively, and it's batshit crazy, man. That, that stake that is holding up, what do you call them? I think it's like a tent pole. I oftentimes look at John Force as a tent pole, the center of our circus tent, right? The pole that's like holding up the big top. It's John Force, and he's like 70. The wood's old. It's starting to crack. It's been well used it's been it's like my deck behind my house it's it's been around a little bit we've painted it several times we've treated it with different coatings and but you know what i've got to build a new deck this summer 
right? It's done a good job for my family. My kids have played on that deck. We've had 100 barbecues, 1,000 barbecues. John Force is the deck behind my house. He's served us well. He's provided a lot of wonderful memories. He, he's, he's been a, a, the central focus of my house. Our kitchen's kind of small, so we're on the deck a lot. And John Force it needs replaced. And that sounds, I mean, I don't mean it in like a mean way, but it's only a matter of time before he is not able physically to drive a 10, 11,000 horsepower, whatever the number is today, it seems to change a lot. But whatever, there's a, there is a time coming, a day coming, when John Force is not going to be able to drive the bus for us. He's not going to be able to say some crazy shit after he crawls out of a funny car and make everybody laugh and kind of give us all a little buzz until the next time he says something crazy. Somebody else has to step into that role. There's a handful of guys that I think are doing a good job, but I don't know that we're harnessing that effort. I don't know that we're really making the most of that effort right now. We're just, and I think what it's, what we're really happening is what's happening is there, there's, we're kind of waiting for it to just happen on its own. I don't know that it's going to, it could, it could, I, you never know. NASCAR, a lot of people point to an infield fistfight as basically sparking the wildfire that was NASCAR for like three decades, right? It, it all, I mean, there are a lot of people smarter than I that point to a fistfight in the infield that literally sparked, changed everything for NASCAR, for stock car racing. And who knows? Steve Torrance bitch slaps uh, somebody, I don't know, or Britney Force smacks Steve Torrance or vice, whatever, that'd be a bad look, don't do that. But if there was some physical altercation, who knows? It could be the jumping off point for another 10 years, 20 years of excitement and volatility and all these things. But I don't think we can just stand around with our fingers crossed, right? We got to be identifying some guys that are kind of creating that magic on their own or people that are, or, or maybe I don't, I'm often reminded, and I actually have a little bit of experience with this. For those that don't know, we're preparing to release a really cool, and I'm super proud of it, and I can't wait to talk about it more, a reality show based on Richard Freeman and Erica Enders and that NHRA Pro Stock Pro Mod team and the, the battles that they fight and really the life that they live out on the road. And I learned, and this is interesting, we filmed the first three episodes, and our editors went to work putting these things together, patching this in creating something that I thought would be entertaining. And when upon review, I realized, like, man, we're probably going to have to force some sizzle. And you don't want, to, you don't want anything to, to be unnatural. You don't want it to seem staged or anything like that. But there has to be a producer. That, and I look at real world, MTV's real world and road rules. I can't help but believe there was a guy or a gal that was kind of, okay, I'm going to put all these people, all these strangers in a house, and I'm going to hope some wild shit pops off. And I'm sure it did on, a, on several occasions. I know it did because I watched a lot of that stuff when I was younger, but I guarantee you there was a moment on the set of Jersey Shore where a producer said, what if we did tequila shots tonight, guys, and slid a bottle of Patron onto the table and told them to get after it, right? Or asked a question that they knew would be inflammatory and decided that they were going to live with the consequences. They just were. It may be ugly. 
Maybe really ugly, but they were just going to live with the consequences, let whatever happens happen, and go from there. And I bet a lot of gold, truly iconic moments, probably came from those not predetermined, but just kind of fleshed out. What would happen if? And that is actually a line that I learned from Blake Fontenelle, our lead videographer and kind of the magic man behind a lot of the video production stuff that we do at Drag Illustrated. Blake asked me that question. He said, every time we film one of these scenes or every time we're storyboarding an episode, we have to ask that question. What would happen if? What would happen if we took the keys out of every golf cart and every scooter in the elite motorsports pit area? What would happen? And I tell you what, the answer to that question is probably television gold. And I think that somebody needs to be asking those kind of questions in the production booth or whatever at an NHRA national event, or especially when it comes to putting this stuff on TV. There's going to be some moments that just happen organically. There's going to be something exciting, and we've had a few of them. I think there was a one of the most exciting things I ever remember is like Ron Capps bitch slapped Whit Bazemore, I think is what happened. And then I, I believe there was a time when, uh, and this wasn't that long ago, I remember watching this. I was at the gym, our local YMCA, and I'll never forget looking in the mirror and behind my shoulder, behind my back, all the TVs. No surprise I was looking in the mirror. I was flexing probably. But I look in the mirror, and I see behind me on all these TVs above the treadmill, ESPN, and John Force is on SportsCenter talking about a fight in the shutdown at the U.S. Nationals with Tony Pedragon. They're... You know, Tony Pedregon's a Golden Gloves boxer, and they're going to get down, right? And I just thought, man, I wish we could have a fight at the drag strip every weekend. I don't necessarily want to be in it. I certainly don't want to have to try to break it up because that's always the guy that gets hurt. But I don't know that would be all bad. And I think that we're so – this is so interesting of a conversation to have that I actually had a little powwow earlier today, this very day, with a well-known television producer, and they told me they identified one of the biggest issues that exist with drag racing is, and this kind of surprised me, and I guess it's true, but I hadn't really thought about it in these terms, drag racing's squeaky clean image. Everybody is a wholesome family man or woman. They are all wonderful people that have that pay their bills and are are honest as the day is long. And I've talked about that before. I've wrote about it in my column in the magazine that I oftentimes pinch myself a little bit and feel blessed infinitely that I'm able to operate in this particular industry because I don't think all industries are like this. I don't think every industry is packed full of people that you can't wait to see and would most sure, most assuredly welcome into your house to have dinner, introduce your family to, trust your kids with, trust with your kids, excuse me. This is a great group of people and as awesome as it is to do business here and to hang out at the races and be a part of this sport, when it comes to creating drama or good television, it's kind of tough. It'd be like filming a television show, I don't know, only during the service at your local Baptist church. Right? I mean, it's you're going to have to go in the parking lot or in the basement of the church or somewhere else to find some drama because you're probably not going to find it from 10 to 11 or 11 to noon at your local church because everybody's got their putting their best foot forward, the preacher's at the pulpit spewing the gospel, and everybody's on their best behavior, right? Everybody in every pew, minus a couple of foul-mouthed kids or whatever, some, some father falling asleep, everybody's on their best behavior. And I think that that's pretty much 
every NHRA national event, most drag races, certainly every PDRA event. I mean, that's one that really sticks out to me is because everybody there is super wholesome. And that's great. It's great for a million reasons, right? It's a great for all these reasons. If you're trying to start a business or if you're trying to do business, that's a great place to do it. You're going to find a lot of people that pay on time and honor their word. But when it comes to putting together an interesting television show, it's probably going to be pretty hard because no one wants to hurt anyone's feelings. No one wants to say anything off color. No one, everyone's pretty well afraid to say what they think for fear of upsetting somebody. And you look at any of these Beverly Hills shows or Housewives shows or whatever, these people aren't doing anything special, but they're just, all these shows' success, this producer told me today, is directly correlated to the the star power of the cast and the willingness of those people to wear their hearts on their shirt sleeve, say what they think, and live with the consequences. And sometimes, I mean, I would say on a lot of those, I mean, a lot of those reality show stars, sadly, not a lot, but some of them, they end up in prison. They they make some bad decisions. They probably burn a lot of bridges. It seems like every one of those reality shows have several relationships that end up blown up, and it sucks. But, man, it makes for great TV. And if that's what we're trying to do, I mean, we're probably going to have to, you know, bear the consequences or suffer the consequences that come with that type of stuff. So, man, it's a very interesting thing just kind of talk, touching on these trends and all this different stuff. And I'm going to rapid fire through like a couple of more questions before I cut this thing off. My agreement is uh, this is one cup of coffee, and I'm unfortunately I'm already into two. I promised myself I would do one cup of coffee, burn through all these questions, and call it a day. But I want to, I want to ha- answer at least a couple more. Has Steve Torrance entered the conversation for best drivers in top fuel history? I would say yes. I don't pretend to be a top fuel, funny car historian. My expertise most definitely lies in door slammer drag racing, but just based on the run he had in 2018, the the dominance he displayed, winning out the countdown, I just, it's remarkable to me. And I think it's remarkable that they've been able to do it seemingly, it, not that they came out of nowhere, but man, they are putting an exclamation point, put in a period uh, punctuating their their run, and it's it seems like they're not going to lose uh, any speed. They hiccuped maybe. I don't know if you could call their early season struggles really a hiccup. They just didn't win for a few races, but they're right back in their championship form, and they're probably going to be a problem for everybody in fuel racing until they decide to stop, until Steve Torrance does something else or hangs it up. He's going to be a problem, and I think that it's not it cannot be overstated what he's doing. I've talked about this before, but it's hard to win a drag race. I don't know that there's any way to really explain how difficult it is to win, to go rounds at a, at a drag race. It's hard to win tic-tac-toe four times in a row, unless you're playing against, like, your kid or something. It's hard to win anything, and when you go into an event where you have to win four rounds of racing and, you've, and you're going up against people that are definitely capable of beating you have the equipment to beat to beat you to stay poised to stay in that moment and be able to 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 find success i don't think it can be overstated steven steve torrance is doing something truly special it's crazy to think 
how many rounds of racing that he's won. I don't know the number, but it's been a lot. I don't know how many rounds he won consecutively last year, but I know it was a ton. He won a lot of rounds of racing, and we just I can't really say enough about it. If he's not in the conversation for best ever or one of the best drivers in top fuel history, he should be, and he is now. I think that something that also isn't talked about, and you see this a lot in stick and ball sports. I'm a, a bit of a basketball fan, so I watch NBA basketball a good bit, and I think that it's interesting. I actually have a bet going on right now with Tony Christian and I think Rear, David Rare. Uh, I bet a hundred bucks on anybody but the Golden State Warriors winning the championship this year. And I hate to say it, but I'm probably going to be ponying up a couple hundred bucks because I don't know that anybody's got a chance. But there are teams in stick and ball sports that you can just sense excel when they're playing from behind. I think it's easier to play from behind. I do. I think that when you're being counted out, it's easy. The underdog story, right? When you're, when everybody's betting against you, you're able to muster up just this extra level of energy, extra little bit. Oh, you, I'm going to prove you wrong. I don't know that there's anything more dangerous than like a really able-bodied individual with a chip on their shoulder. Now that chip can become a cinder block that can also be their demise. I've struggled with that. I get a chip on my shoulder. Oh, tell me I can't do something and I will work day and night. And I've had to temper that a little bit as I get older and a little wiser. But I don't know that there's anything more dangerous than someone who's very capable with a little bit of extra motivation from a chip on their shoulder, a monkey on their back, whatever you want to call it. And they're going to they're going to dig deep. Right. And they're also always making their best shot. And that's why it's so hard to race out front. We actually did a story on this in Drag Illustrated a while back, just talking about how hard it is to race out front, how hard it is to win rounds, compete for a championship and have any level of success. When every time you go to the starting line, you're getting your competitors best shot. They're going to go double Oh nine against you and probably Oh 50 the rest of the weekend. That's how it happens. I see it happen to Troy Coughlin. I see it happen to Ricky Smith. I see it happen to Erica Enders. I see it happen to, um, uh, I don't know if I already said Ricky Smith, but I mean, Jed Coughlin is who I was going to say, actually. But I see it happen to these super accomplished guys that win all the time and have all these championships to their credit. When they go to the starting line, they're going to probably get that opposing team's best run of the weekend, that driver's best reaction time. You're just going to get... You've got a target on your back, man, and these guys are swinging for the fence when they're against you. So for Steve Torrance to have had a target on his back for as long as he has to continually face everyone's best shot and remain as poised and successful as he is, I think that it is remarkable, and he's definitely in that conversation. There will be a time in the not-so-distant future when we're talking about him as one of the best to ever do it. So very and – and I think that you can argue that top fuel in the 60s, 70s, 80s – I mean, it's just different. It was different in the 90s. I mean, they're, it's always changing, but he's as bad as it gets right now, and I don't know that uh, anybody's going to be able to do anything about it for a good little bit. So we've wrapped up about an hour here. On the uh, the Ask West show, I hope to do more and more of these, and I encourage you folks, please, A, first off, thank you. I can't believe that anybody cares at all about what uh, a, a guy from Missouri has to say about the sport of drag racing. I am blessed beyond measure that, by the way, by way of a, a whole lot of passion, 
we've we've reached this point with Drag Illustrated and this podcast and and social media, the tools that we have available to us to have a voice like we do and have people listen and care about what we say means the world to me. And I want to hear more. So I got a, a bunch of emails from the first uh, few times we've done this. If you've got any thoughts or feelings or things that you'd like for me to touch on or ask, please shoot me an email, Wes at dragillustrated.com. Hit us up on social media, Drag Illustrated on Facebook, at Drag Illustrated on Instagram, at Drag Illustrated on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. If you come across something that you think should be on our radar, let us know. We try to keep our ear to the ground. We do our level best to know everything that's going on in the sport of drag racing, but this is a big deal. This is a big, big, big ball of wax, man. There's a lot of stuff going on, oftentimes at the exact same time, and we just can't know it all. We try. We try but we do not. So if there's something going on you want us to talk about or an issue, that's something that I love to talk about. Pressing issues, issues that are facing our sport, things that are going on that maybe we don't know about, please let us know. Again, shoot us an email, hit us up on social. It's been a lot of fun. I'll close with this. Lots of well-known stops coming up on the NHRA tour in June. Our listener asks, Norwalk, Chicago, Topeka, Bristol, do you have a favorite track to visit this summer or on the tour in general? I would say that I have a lot of kind of bad memories of going to Joliet, not to bag on them or hurt them. Route 66 Raceway, beautiful facility, but it seems like every time I went to Chicago, I sweat my ass off. It's 6 million degrees and miserable. I love that place. For me, Chicago is one of those places, Route 66 Raceway and Joliet, it's one of those places you have to pinch yourself because it's like, did drag racing really produce this? I mean, it's stadium style seating. It's enormous. It's picturesque. And it warms my heart to think that drag racing has venues like that. But I got to say the other ones that were mentioned, Norwalk and Bristol, especially picturesque places that I love to be. Norwalk's a little bit in the middle of nowhere, but there's a couple, there's an Italian restaurant in Norwalk that I love to visit. Danny Boy's a great place, great food, great appetizers, great bar. You always see a bunch of racers there. I'm looking forward to going to Danny Boy's. I always stay at the Kalahari Resort and water park. So does most of the NHRA teams. So it's like my annual visit to a water park that we don't get wet at, unless we don't want to, because it's pouring rain. It's the only time I go to a water park and don't bring my wife and kids. So I always look forward to going to Norwalk, seeing the baiters, eating a, I think it's a pound of ice cream for a dollar. Yeah, that's right. They always hook up everybody in the media center. We don't have to pay the dollar to get the pound of ice cream. And it is horrible what I do to my body while I'm in Norwalk. Between the aforementioned Danny boys and the pounds of ice cream at a time, it's a rough one on Wes's digestive system and diet as a whole while I'm in Norwalk. I also really look forward to going to Bristol. I don't get to Bristol that often. Thunder Valley, if you haven't been there, what they say is true. It sounds different. It's so beautiful. The I would probably the most beautiful facility in drag racing other than maybe Bandemir Speedway in Denver. I'm obviously biased. I've got a lot of history there, but those are two facilities that are jaw-droppingly beautiful. And Bristol's a ton of fun. There's a lot of history there. You're in door slammer country, man. It's a big deal that people know about door cars down there. They care about pro stock. They care about pro mod. Really really something that excites me and the cars do sound different they always get good car counts there so i'm looking forward to going to bristol i i also have to say that topeka is one of the tracks that i have a little bit of a place for in my heart heartland park topeka is the track that i grew up going to national events at 
It's about three and a half, four hours from my house. My dad, it was always our annual pilgrimage over to Topeka. I don't know that we ever stayed the night, and I've thought about that, how much of a prick my dad was making us drive all morning over there and then drive all night back. God, he wanted to work. He loves to work. My dad loves to work. We couldn't stay at the races overnight because we had to get back to the shop and work, which I guess served us well. But I do have a ton of fond memories driving over to Topeka, Heartland Park, and, and taking in a national event. A lot of the kind of like the, the photo album ammunition that I have in my life was taken, photos that were taken at Topeka, me with Warren Johnson or me with Kurt Johnson or John Force or Joe Amato or Joe Lapone. I met a lot of people in the sport of drag racing over there. I was a little bitty kid a lot of those years, but those are some fond memories of mine. The place is enormous. You have to do a lot of walking. You better be in good shape if you're going to take in a drag race at Topeka. But again, it's a track that I just have a lot of fond memories of, so I'm looking forward to going there. I'm going to hit all three of those is my guess right now. I'm going to go to all of them, maybe take a couple of weeks off and kind of recover in July. My wife and I, have a we've got a little vacation planned in early July, right around my daughter Sophia's birthday that we're pretty excited about. But no, it's it's going to be an exciting, exciting June. There's a ton of drag racing. There was another question in here, three Pro Mod races in June when it's painfully hot. Can Stevie Fast Jackson hold on to the NHRA Pro Mod points lead? What do you expect? And I tell you, I think this is when you see drag racing at its finest. We all love record-setting performances. We all love mineshaft conditions, and we want to see them guys blow down the scoreboards. But I think we see drag racing at its finest, at its best, when the conditions are tricky, when that track's a little hot and hot and greasy, when these tuners are having to dig deep, when they're having to really dive into their notes, when they're really having to try hard and maybe experiment outside of their wheelhouse a little bit. These drivers have to be up on the wheel. They know that they may be the difference. When the track isn't there necessarily, they may have to win the race on the starting line, right? The reaction time's more important than ever. They've got to be on their game. If they get out in eliminations and they get out on their opponent, they may have to pedal it a couple of times. This is when you see there's a very... It's a recent story, but it became folklore very quickly. There's a story that early last year... Mike Castellana and crew chief Frank Ace Manzo were actually in Indianapolis at Lucas Oil Raceway practicing pedaling the throttle. They put a cone out on the track and were having Mike practice pedaling the throttle when he got to that cone to save the run. That's how hard guys are trying right now. And to me, to to be that guy that's out there making sure that you can pedal your shit and be successful, I think that is badass. It is certified badassery. That's what that is. Certified badasses only. I absolutely love that type of stuff. So what I expect in June in drag racing is the unpredictable. I think this is when guys like Eric Latino, we saw it in Virginia, can go some rounds. A guy that is always right there. They No surprise that he's going to go fast, but this is when I think guys like that shine. There are a slew of tuners who love to race in the heat. And I think it's when the cream really rises to the top. So June, July, I know it's hard on everybody. I really, I mean, and I've experienced that stuff. Putting up an awning, like in like the Fourth of July weekend, it, it's basically like the 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 lowest ring of hell or whatever you want to say. It is brutal. Anybody who's had to do that, I pray for you. I think about you, folks. If you've rolled out and awning in brutal hot summer, it's tough. But man, some of the best drag racing, and I think it's what makes. September and October is so special, right? That's when 
those races kind of stick out and you know some crazy stuff's going to happen. And it shouldn't happen every weekend, right? We get spoiled. That's something that's happened. There was this question in here, any positive, negative trends you're seeing as 2019 approaches the halfway mark? And one of the trends that I've seen the last few years is fans and racers acting like races don't happen unless a record is set. That drives me insane. It's something that I think is, it's just disrespectful. It's it's spoiled, and it really speaks to just our culture and our society. Everything's got to be the best ever or the world's quickest and fastest to be of interest to us. We're all so spoiled and so desensitized that we don't care, seemingly don't care, unless it's the first ever or the quickest ever or the fastest ever or a barrier-breaking performance. And I think we forget that we're out here to drag race, folks. If you want to go land speed rec- racing, go to Bonneville. As far as I know, it's still open. I know there's some concern there, but you can still go run your race car, run your hot rod on a dry salt bed and go as fast as you can and five miles or whatever you want to do. That's great. But we go to the drag strip to drag race, and it doesn't matter, in my opinion, if every freaking run is a world record or not. Some of the best racing I ever, I've ever witnessed in my life was between cars running 4.0s in the eighth mile. I mean, at the height of the ADRL, Pro Extreme and Pro Nitrous, cars were running 380s, 90s, and 4.0s. In the Midwest, cars were running 4.0s and 14s. It was some of the, it was heady times, man. You don't, records are great, but they should be the cherry on top of the Sunday. That's what they should be. They're, they're not ice cream or strawberries. They're the cherry on top. The meat and potatoes of drag racing is side-by-side competition. And if I see a trend that's developing, it's that your race isn't worthwhile or your race isn't exciting or cool if it happens in the summer. The notion that we're going to change the schedule of a drag race to run the cars late at night when they can set records In my opinion, it is madness. And it really is just digging the hole deeper. The parody comes from challenging track conditions. I believe a lesser funded, perhaps not quite as good team that maybe doesn't have the parts and pieces that some of the top tier programs have. Their opportunity to shine is when the track goes to shit, when when ingenuity and creativity and know-how is going to shine through is when those conditions are tricky. And we shouldn't go out of our way to eliminate that variable. I think we should embrace that variable. If we say we're going to race at 11 a.m., let's race at 11 a.m. And if it's 157 degrees, so be it. Thanks, guys. See you on the next episode. Again, thank you all so much for listening. Please keep sending in questions. Wes at dragillustrated.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast. We're blown away. Thank you all so much. Huge shout out to our sponsors, all of our guests, past and present, and uh, we will talk to you soon.